Hi, this is Tosha. I wanted to come back to the top of this episode and briefly explain what ECT is even before we get started. So electroconvulsive therapy, which we abbreviate to ECT and is commonly referred to by the public as shock therapy, is a widely used psychiatric treatment. It does have a long history, which we'll talk a little bit about in this episode, but basically it's an electric shock that's applied to the head and that provokes a short seizure. Now, it's this seizure that is thought of as having the therapeutic properties, uh, which helps in many psychiatric cases for many different psychiatric disorders. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second-year child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, guys. Fourth-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. How's it going, Dr. Poole? And third-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're going to talk about electroconvulsive therapy. And I want to kind of start off with just kind of uh, maybe saying a little bit about what it is for those folks that are maybe not too familiar, and then also just why we think it's important to talk about this. So I'm going to just throw that out there. Does anyone want to take that? Well, I I think the reason we thought of this show idea was because I had just been talking to Alan one day about um, this story I heard from my attending when I was a med student. My attending told me when he was a medical student and he was rotating, doing his rotation at his inpatient psychiatric hospital, um, there was a psychiatrist who came into the unit as a patient. And so when my attending as a medical student went to go do the initial assessment, the psychiatrist um, told him right away that he wanted ECT. And he said, uh, because it works faster, um, it's better, and it has fewer side effects. So that story really stuck with my attending. Um, and it, I, you know, apparently stuck with me too to the fact that it keeps getting passed along. Um, but the, yeah, I didn't learn, I didn't learn that much in medical school about ECT. Um, so this is one of the experiences that I had that started to, uh, expand the way I thought about ECT. So it sounds like it kind of, uh, changed how you thought about it, but, and so, but let, and it's got a bad reputation for those folks. That are, so, but what is it? What, like, what, are, like, can you explain a little bit about what it is? I mean, well, and, and to your answer, the first question you asked Aaron, which I think is a really important one, which is like, or, or maybe you asked this in my head. I don't even, I'm going crazy <laughs> little by little. Um, I think Slowly you asked, losing it, Alan. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go we're all slowly losing it. I'm quickly losing it. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think you asked, why are we doing this episode about it? And I think the reason is because, like, let's, let me take what you said and what Tosha said, right? On one hand, it has a bad reputation. On the other hand, when a psychiatrist gets to choose, in Tosha's story, right, the psychiatrist chooses ECT. And I think 
it, you have to ask some questions there. Okay, well then why does this have a bad reputation? And, and the reason we want to do an episode about it is because it's great and for the right circumstances, it's great and it shouldn't have a bad reputation anymore. It should have a nuanced, interesting, thoughtful reputation because like many things in medicine, it has a history rooted in some, some interesting failed mm -hmm. uh, experiments and, and things. But um, where we are with it today, not really worthy of a bad reputation at all. So I take it they made modifications to this procedure and uh, to, that corrected a lot of the problems with it early on. Yeah, yeah. So ECT started with ideas that, mu that there was a mutual exclusivity between certain mental illness and seizures. So they were like, oh, look, people with this and that mental, uh, or sorry, people with seizures don't have mental ill, don't have this and that type of mental illness. Like I think it was schizophrenia. Um, that turns out not to be true at all. But it, from that idea sprouted, and, and also I don't know whether it was chicken or egg, whether, whether experiments gave rise to that idea or that idea gave rise to experiments. But I think it was like they were just observing, like in, uh, in nature, the f folks with epilepsy. Um, so then people started using camphor, um, which is like a, something that's used for skin and like cough. Um, remedies at, in low doses, but in higher doses can be poisonous and cause seizures. They were using that to cause seizures. Um, they were also doing like insulin induced um, hypoglycemic comas to cause seizures. And at some point someone realized, let's try electricity to cause seizures. And they were right that the seizures do help with many psychiatric illnesses. Um, they hadn't quite figured out the how to be humane part, which was not unique to that treatment or to psychiatry. That was just going on in medicine and in the world in general for most of human history. <laughs> that could be the at the title of this episode. ECT is great. <laughs> because that, that you said hell. With an asterisk. Asterisk. Yeah. Actually yeah. have that tattoo Conditions on apply. my eyebrow. <laughs> I have it on one eyebrow. I have ECT is great. And on the other eyebrow, I have how, how long has it been great? Has it been great the last 20 years or longer? I, I oh. can't answer that. I think in my lifetime. Okay. It's been great. That's I, fair. I, I have no, I, you know, I shouldn't have even said that. I don't know. But I know that the way, the way it's currently done, um, you get a, a medical evaluation and, or you're at least medically cleared um, and you get a psychiatric evaluation, you have to have tried other things first, right? Like, like specifically, um, you have to have tried medications um, or there has to be some reason why that's not the appropriate course. Like, like time is of the essence because you're, you're not eating or your suicidality is extreme um, and, or you're too psychotic to take medications maybe, or you're catatonic and you're not moving. There's, there's a lot of, different things, but um, you get anesthesia and a very brief pulse is delivered to your brain just um, enough to make you have a seizure. It's only slightly above the, the what they determine to be your seizure threshold. They usually do it on one side of the brain on the non-dominant right side of the brain so that there's less side effects. And you get an, EE, an EEG confirmed seizure because they're using muscle relaxers. So that you're not going to see the patient shaking. There's no horrible 
backbreaking muscle contractions. It's just um, looking at the electroencephalogram readout to see, okay, this is seizure-like activity. You let the seizure go on for the uh, amount of time that's deemed to be therapeutic, which I forgot how long that is, but it's short. And it's like a couple seconds. It's some number of seconds, yeah. And and um, and then people come out of anesthesia. They you know they they stop the anesthesia and people wake up and they go home and they do their day. And and that that they continue to do that. That's a treatment that you. It's not just one treatment. You you get a few treatments over a course of treatment and um, people get wildly better. So um, 80 to 90 percent, or I'm sorry, 90 to 100 percent effective for catatonia, psychosis, somatic delusions, 90 percent effective for major depressive disorder, um, 40 to 50 percent effective if a personality disorder is comorbid, um, and then not effective for phobias, anxiety, um, dysthymia, eating disorders. But there's a huge number of things that are really, really hard to treat that it's very effective for. Uh, you are blowing my mind right now, Alan, uh, especially that one about psychosis. So I, I kind of know the depression one. Psychosis? I did not know that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it blows my mind it's too. Crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. Those numbers are not numbers that we see psychiatry generally, yeah. we, we do a good job, we help people, but our effect sizes for our medications, except for a few are not that high. Usually the effects of our medications are subtle and they kind of give that patient the push they need to get living their best life using a lot of work and effort, but they don't just fix stuff. Um, not that ECT is a cure, it's a treatment and you may need continued um, treatments with relapse into depression or whatever, but it's more effective than anything else that I can think of that we have. It's, it's one of our most powerful tools and it's a real shame that it's not utilized more. I remember as a medical student, I, had, I uh, was able to administer ECT to a couple patients and there was one patient I, I recall seeing who he was, I mean, com the flattest affect I think I've ever seen. I mean, not to the point of pure catatonia, but, you know, that kind of blank stare, face not moving at all. And it was after like one or two sessions, he was smiling and talking. And he had been like that for months. And to have something that quick, it was, I mean, it made a believer out of me very quickly. And then the next immediate question was, why aren't we using this more? And it's, I guess that's kind of a, an involved answer that has a lot to do with stigma. Um, you know, what was it Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? And although a good film didn't, didn't do a ton of favors for, you know, ECT. And then I think the other part of it is there's a lot of, um, I mean, it looks kind of barbaric when you think about it. Like, oh, you're giving somebody a seizure. Normally we're trying to prevent those type of things. But I mean, it's one of the most powerful tools we have in all of psychiatry. And also, it's, you know, off patent. You can't really monetize ECT. Like, there's not a lot you can do in that way. So there's not a ton of people pushing it from, like, a financial standpoint. So this is where, I mean, you know, one of my hero podcasts is the Carlat Report. Uh, always want to give kudos to them. This is where we can do something Carlat-esque in terms of 
championing something that's not making anyone any patent money. You know, when people are pushing ECT, it's like when people are pushing lithium, uh, you know, there, there's no, no one's making a, a, a patent buck off of this. It's not, in, in Joshua's words, it's not sexy or cutting edge, which I think in medicine, you trust the treatments that have, people have tried to kick them to the curve and they keep coming back despite no drug company being behind them because they're just really effective. And there have been huge concerted efforts by various activist groups, which we may not mention, but which I'm sure some people know are actively fighting psychiatry on lots of things to try to get ECT stamped out completely. The, you know, excellent movie, as Joshua mentioned, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And all, almost all of the media portrayals of ECT show it as a forcible treatment. You know, while there are times when substitute decision-making is done in medicine, like when someone is determined not to have capacity because they, like for the example of something that ECT treats, malignant catatonia or, neuro, um, or neuroleptic malignant syndrome, where you could die if the person's not able to give their consent, someone else could give consent for them. But in most cases, we're just doing this for people who are coming in with their Starbucks and they, they want their ECT. This isn't something we're forcing on people. And, um, you know, this is one of those, I mean, in almost anything related to, to medicine, don't believe the movies, but this is a, this is a big one for that. I have so many questions. I'm going to play the role of the naive person. Cause I, you know, I don't know a whole lot about it. I hear stories here and there. But uh, you know, one of the questions I had. So it does it. It's not effective for anxiety. Uh, you know, uh, frequently, like you all know, frequently depression and anxiety are are linked. They're they're often seen t together. So is it the case? Uh, you know, can you speak to this? Uh, is it the case that your depression goes away but your anxiety stays? Is that how it works, or or is it kind of do a little bit for the anxiety but not a lot? That's interesting. We were talking about TMS before the episode, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is kind of like a like a sort of related little cousin. Then that's actually the case for TMS too, where it treats depression, but it's at least not FDA um, either. It's not FDA approved for anxiety, mm -hmm. and I don't have an answer. I mean, it's really interesting. So, you know, they say, you, you think of anti, I think we've started to think about um, depression and anxiety as inextricably linked and it's, it's come into the language of our diagnoses, like some of the depression criteria involve anxiety. And you can, you know, when you diagnose someone with depression, you can add with anxious distress. But I wonder how much of that nosologically is just us starting to think about diseases in terms of um, a disease as an entity that represents all of the things that this particular medication can treat, that we want a market share for this medication and, and us being unduly influenced by pharma. And there's a, there is a trend, I think, that's either emerging or I, I don't know where it's at in its sort of ascent um, to rename medications not not like antidepressants or more to sort of talk about what it is they're doing like serotonin modulators or dopamine modulators or 
something along those lines to try to get a little bit of clarity about why do we call them this when this is kind of what they're doing and if we don't really understand fully what causes depression and anxiety we have a lot of information but could we pinpoint it and i don't know that's a that's a question i have as well if you're just joining us if you're just joining us you're listening to let's get psyched on KUCR and we're talking about electroconvulsive therapy or ECT and how it it when it first started it got a really bad reputation probably a lot of it was earned i, I again i don't know a lot huge history but there, there it sounds like you know that early history of ECT some folks really got harmed and and and, and possibly permanently harmed with like uh, you know, I'm thinking memory loss, and you said you said bone. They now use muscle relaxants, so there's no bone breaking convulsions. So I feel like a lot of people got harmed that way. Is that fair? Yeah, there were. Yes, there were. I don't know about a lot. I don't know percentages, but in the in the old days, certainly. I mean, any seizure, right, can um, can exert enough muscular uh, contraction in kind of a, an uncoordinated way that it can break bone. Normally, when you when muscle contracts. The opposing muscle is inhibited. I think it's called reciprocal inhibition. And um, it's like a trick actually that physical therapists use when they're trying to get you to, when they're trying to have like a, a stressed out muscle group relax, they can have you like flex the opposite muscle group. But when you have both flex at the same time, where you have something flexed too hard, you can break the back, you can break other stuff. It's, it's very dangerous. That, that's not stuff I think has happened in, our, in my lifetime. What, what can you all say about um, the impact to memory? Because that would be one of the biggest things that I've, at least I've heard, is, is that it can impact your memory and you, you lose memories and you kind of lose a part of yourself. So there's, there's a lot of data that kind of looks into this and the way they, a lot of the data kind of classifies it is like cognitive impairment. They're, they do break it down further into like, you know, uh, visual spatial memory versus uh, recalled memory. And, I, I remember being taught, but I think Tosha and I were talking about this, that the majority of the memory loss is anterograde, meaning moving forward, and it is uh, time limited. So it depends on which studies you look at, but you know some people report that it stops being a problem at three weeks. Other people report that there's issues with memory or, or cognitive function at as long as six months. But most of the data says that it pretty much stops at about six months. And the other thing that uh, has to be taken into consideration is one people who have poor cognitive reserve going into ect have a worse issue with it whereas people who have a lot of cognitive reserve let's say they're educated they're you know high intellect things like that they tend to have less issue and they tend to bounce back quicker the other thing that we get into is the same problem that we can get with um, like pseudo dementias where if you're using ect in elderly people um, or if you're using uh, ECT in elderly people, that can already be an issue because co- global kind of cognitive function is reduced. But the other thing is cognitive function can be reduced in like neurovegetative depression. So when you see people improve um, after ECT, is it the depression that's lessening, lessening or is it that the ECT did it? So there's a little bit of getting kind of mired in there. There's also a difference in uh, side effects between unilateral or bilateral placement of electrodes. You have fewer memory problems with the unilateral placement. On the right-hand side, yeah. 
And I was just looking up frontal placement right above the orbits. They have about the same rate of cognitive issue as just the unilateral, just on the right-hand side. But bilateral is preferred in people who have like really immediate. So like let's say they're catatonic and they're not eating or they're suicidal or you know if it's really urgent, they, um, the gold standard is still bilateral. Interesting. That is interesting. Do we do we have any? I go ahead. Sorry, Jeff. I mean, sorry, uh, Alan. Curiosity kind of biting me here. I wonder if anyone has used that rather than, I wonder if anyone has used that backwards where they've looked at ECT placements um, and memory problems to try to retroactively figure out some of the underlying structures that maybe have roles in memory that we didn't previously know. Hmm. It's interesting. Um, do you, do you, does anyone know about what uh, the mechanism and, and how it works? Like, what what is going on? Uh, I almost feel like it's a reset, but that's just my common sense thought about it. What is actually happening? Like, why is it working? I bet you're thinking about that, like using paddles to shock a heart. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Or power cycling your computer. <laughs> I mean, there, the reset thing is borne out. I mean, Joshua maybe can tell us more about this, but I feel like the reset thing is somewhat uh, borne out in some of the hypotheses for how this works. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, before we got on, I was taking a look at, I think it's 2017, sort of like, uh, not a meta-analysis, but they were kind of going over, like, what are all the theories that we have to date? And the answer is, we know a lot of things, but we don't really know why for sure. We can notice a lot of things, but like with most sort of consciousness-based issues, there's a what you can get into the weeds pretty quickly where you can really only notice the things that are going on, but whether or not that's causative or just correlative is tricky. And so, I mean, people have been trying to figure this out for decades upon decades. Some of the hypotheses are things like um, a... In, uh, let me pull it up actually so I'm not just speaking out of the air. So numerous intricate biological processes, including alterations in neuroplasticity, uh, so basically making new neurons, that's also implicated with uh, TMS and some evidence for antidepressants, particularly psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Um, and lithium. Got to plug <laughs> Lithium needs no introduction. <laughs> uh, neurotrophic factors, uh, release of neuro... Uh, transmitters, functional connectivity, immune mechanisms, neuroendocrine function, and epigenetic processes. So even changing gene expression. All of these kind of, there's evidence to support that all of these happen following ECT, but what actually results in the antidepressant or the antipsychotic effect? I, I don't know. Yeah, that, that antipsychotic effect is really very interesting to me. Um, I, I'm really interested in have you followed folks or what is your experience in following folks afterward? It, it, I, I'm really interested in how their thinking changed, their attentional focus. Did it change? I know that with a lot of depressed folks, they have this real deep, uh, constant connection with their failed past or uh, incidents that have happened that they, they, uh, you know, they'll remind themselves and they'll feel tied to and burdened. What goes on with that kind of attentional focus? I'm just kind of curious. A lot of the patients that I've seen go through ECT, it's a more of an atypical depression than that. 
So it's not as much of a cognitively based depression. It's more like a cognitively impaired depression, which also clouds some of the ability to perceive whether there's these side effects or not. <laughs> because so like I'll think of a, I'll kind of um, assemble a composite patient from a few of the patients I've seen here. But basically it's this person who's um, not cleaning, not, not like caring for their, their own room. Um, their parent is, is bringing them meals and stuff and they're leaving the bananas on the floor and their, their room is kind of gathering things and they can't be bothered to, you know, getting out of bed is extremely difficult. Eating is extremely difficult and hygiene is just kind of, it just takes too much energy. It's um, to, <laughs> to quote one flew of the cuckoo's nest. It's, it's as if they're like filling the room with like a maple syrup that this patient has to waddle through, right? It's, it's, it's a hard reality to grapple with, to even do small things. And you give them the ECT and over a few treatments, um, you know, I just watched as the sort of resistance that they're dealing with on like a body level, you know, like they're moving slowly at a severe psychomotor um, slowing it just melts away and they become a human that can function the way that you would expect a human to be able to function. And so you get this return of, of function that is dramatic and kind of profoundly different from, I think the way that we might think of depression day to day. And you get, you know, and it's an ECT is often for these really, really sick patients that have depression that isn't like the depression your your average neighbor uh, can i ask another question on that i hope i hope it's not dominating things but so when you interview these folks what do they say themselves about their internal experience that may be different or modified do they say things like what like you're saying i can feel my body is a little lighter i can you know the the tar is like removed i can i have i to answer your question Aaron, i have heard that the sort of more energy um the you know, I think when we think about like who's a good candidate for ECT, a lot of the time my mind goes right to people who have like neurovegetative or vegetative symptoms. So, you know, that sort of withdrawal, the psychomotor slowing, the inability to move. There is something about sort of shocking that awake that seems to happen. And I've noticed sort of a similar thing happen with TMS too, which is I like to think of conceptually as like ECT light because basically the whole con just very briefly we can do an episode about it but tms transcranial magnetic stimulation they apply a really strong magnet to the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex or other areas depending on the indication that magnet switches back and forth the inducing of a magnet magnetic field back and forth according to faraday's law generates a current that current stimulates the neurons it's a lot of the same thing that you see with ect Interesting, and, and you know, because I, I, I've I've done just minimal research on it, and it, it it is very effective with elderly folks with depression. Could that be how that also kind of you kind of stimulating, kind of mm -hmm. gives you you feel just a little bit, you can do things a little bit more easily. Actually, I'm not sure. I won't speak to. It's hard to say why that would be. It sounds good <laughs> to my yeah, common but... sense brain. It sounds great. It checks out upon a first review. So we would like this episode, I would like this episode um, to be our most popular episode ever. 
and you can help us with that. The, the reason I would like this episode to be our most popular episode, episode is that we have a responsibility to talk about ECT, both to the public and to our patients, because the this is a treatment that is received very little because policy has followed public stigma and misinformation particularly in California, it's embarrassingly difficult to get ECT. Um, and as it stands currently already, white and high socioeconomic status patients are far more likely to receive ECT on multiple studies. Um, this treatment has, this, this issue has intersections with health equity, obviously because of what I just said. Um, so please share this episode with your psychiatrist friends, but also with your non-psychiatrist friends. I've never before asked for like kind of a self-promoting thing like that. Help us have this be our most popular episode. This matters. Um, and ECT, it, you know, it's safe. It's effective. Um, it's safe even in pregnancy with a gyne evaluation prior. Um, and we'd like more people to know about that. That's really a good way to approach it, that health equity part. You know, if in a liberal state like California, how, yeah, it seems like more whites are, have access to it or just are just given it. Is there a, like, how much does it cost? Is it, is it like an insurance thing? Like Medi-Cal doesn't really, is more reluctant to cover it and, or, and because maybe it's costly or maybe the access points upon which to get it is, they're more limited. We're kind of at the end here. So you've got to be brief, Alan. In my experience, and, and my experience doing this in California has been limited, which I will say is, I think, less my fault than because so many of the hospitals and, and providers in California can't do it or don't do it because it's there's so many barriers that have been, I think, purposely enacted in California um, due to anti-psychiatry sentiment and particularly anti-ECT sentiment. Um, but what I've seen in California is the people, it's, it's like Tosha's story. The, the people with access and education and money find out about this. They advocate for themselves and they get it. And the people with less education don't want it, first of all, because they are, you know, they, what they've heard about it is probably more likely to come from the pop culture zeitgeist of ECT is this cruel, horrible thing where they're putting you in an electric chair. Um, and it, it takes a lot of, you know, it's not easy for the doctor to do it. It's a lot of bureaucracy. And so the patient really has to advocate for themselves if that's what they want. And it's like, it's just like Tosha's story, which is amazing because and the embarrassing part is that Tosha's story is her attendings attending. So this is like many, many years ago. And this continues to be the same problem where it's like, if you want ECT, you better be a doctor and you better know the right things to say and the right people to talk to to make it happen. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and why we think it's important to talk about that and why we think it's underutilized. Thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi, Joshua Poole, and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. You can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Benjamin Metrican. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. 
I wanted to ask you guys a question, which is if you guys were struggling with something like severe depression or psychosis or bipolar disorder, would you try to get ECT? Absolutely. I try anything once. So, so let's take these one at a time, right? Okay. If, if I was psychotic, I wouldn't want ECT because I'd be psychotic and I would think that you were experimenting on me and that you were you know, a government imposter or something. And uh, so, no, I wouldn't want- Just a regular to, imposter, you to, sorry. Right. <laughs> I, I was kind of combining delusions there. Um, okay, that's my answer for psychotic. Maybe someone else go for bipolar. Well, I mean, I, I, I feel like I would try it, but I would be, I have to be honest, I'd be a little bit hesitant about ongoing because I feel like there is a tiny little bit of research. Like if you're doing it a lot- it might be affecting your memory. Am I right on that? Like it, it could affect your memory. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. So I would, I would try it definitely a few times and I will recommend uh, my one, my family members, if they had, if they were into that, I feel like it, it's really important with um, suicidal folks. Cause you know, I have to say I've ne- I've never recommended this. I don't think I have maybe one time. Because uh, we had said that on the radio portion, that's exactly that's such a good point. None of us have. I mean, I, I have. It's very rare that we bring patients up for ECT. In the PTSD clinic, I bring it up a good amount because we and have I it own, at the Long Beach VA, and uh, yes. I've had some patients that have undergone it through the Long Beach VA and reported positive things. But I think a lot of people are still really scared, so we try to do certain things ahead of time, like stellate ganglion block. TMS, we just got ketamine. So I'll, I'll run the gamut. And if it doesn't work, I'll be like, I really think we should reconsider ECT. I would try it as well for depression. And I think it's worth noting that, yeah, there are memory problems and there are memory problems with untreated depression and brain damage with untreated bipolar. I mean, you could say that untreated depression also is brain damage, but um, you know, there's, there's phenomena to the non-treatment of these other, some of these other diseases like kindling. Um, some of these diseases, if you don't treat them, you die. And one of the most effective treatments is ECT. I mean, there are psychiatric treatments that are life-threatening in a medical sense, not because of suicide, like um, malignant catatonia and neuroleptic malignant syndrome that ECT is a treatment for. Um, and Which is wild. That deserves more attention. Sorry. Yeah, that's, I, I'm surprised we didn't even talk about that because that's kind of a strange indication, neuroleptic malignant syndrome to abort sort of a, a rapid D2 blockade, you can shock somebody's brain. I, I, I really don't claim to understand why that's helpful. It is, but I just don't know why. I mean, it, it to me, it harkens to what Aaron said of reset. I, I'm just making stuff up here, but it seems if you're physiologically kind of sketching, it seems, you know, like a reset is what you kind of need when you've overblocked something. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you, you would never foresee this being used like eventually, cause it sounds like they they keep modifying it, modifying it and knowing what the effect is and being more precise with uh, who is it, who's it for and what's a good predictor that this could be used for less severe cases. 
like like uh, like you know you think someone comes in with a moderate depression and then is it possible okay so mild to moderate like sure because it's safe and yeah when you use less severe cases that the people the the side effects get taken more seriously because it's about risks versus benefits but also when people study things they tend to want more severe cases because then they get more dramatic effect sizes and so a lot of this stuff that gets studied on the other hand outpatient populations are easier to study and they're more stable and they have better dropout rate or you know lower dropout rates so some, you know, so like a lot of um, antidepressants were studied in outpatient populations, which I think people say artificially depresses, oh, that's the long word, artificially lowers um, the effect size because those people weren't that sick. So I guess you could go either way, but um, it would be interesting, I think, Aaron, it would be interesting to know more about that. Yeah, for more mild or moderate cases. Um, now, I, I heard from, uh, uh, a psychiatrist friend of mine where he said well this is what happens when you have ECT it just floods the brain with all transmitters it just releases it just stimulates your brain so all your transfers, uh, uh, neurotransmits are released at one time so your brain is awash with just a with all of there's people. some evidence to that okay. yeah Maybe there's some evidence true. that there's like a it's like shaking all the candy store loose and it all just kind of falls out. <laughs> and it's not just neurotransmitters, it's neurotrophic factors, it's immune factors, it's, there's even some thought that there's a, a transient increase in the uh, permeability of the blood-brain barrier, which allows sort of like more, more other factors to be as scientific as I can be uh, to enter the brain. Sense. But let, let's remember though, that we're not talking about the shock. It's not the shock that's doing this stuff. It's the seizure. And ah, I think that's a really important thing to keep hmm. in mind because it's that's really good... easy to think that the shock is doing all this stuff. And then, I mean, a seizure is an, essentially an electrical storm. So, you know, make of that what you will. Actually, yeah, I was going to yeah. say that I, I would find that sort of difficult to parse out. Like what, like what level of granularity is the shock different than a seizure? In that, yeah, in the sort of because the seizure is electrical based, I see. Right, yeah. and that's a good point, especially because we didn't, we weren't probably weren't studying this. We, I mean, we for sure weren't studying this stuff with any scientific rigor before it was done electrically. It's not like there were good studies done on the camphor oil induced seizures and the and the insulin induced seizures. Right. Um, I I didn't mention a well, nothing was said about the cost. Like, how much is it cost? Like. Uh, what if you had to pay it out of pocket? How much is this thing? I didn't answer because I didn't know, but I think it's, I don't think it works like that. I don't think it's often, you know, I shouldn't say, well, I, I guess my impression, I which I will, yeah, I, I think it, I, I think it's usually covered though. Okay. Yeah. As long as you get, you go, you jump the hoops or you have all these uh, treatment failures or you had this need that it's very acute. I mean, yeah. The thing is that right now the use of it is after there's been multiple treatment failures. It, you can get insurances to cover it, but I think you have to petition like crazy. I will tell one story. This patient has a very, 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 very bad psychosis, and the, that predisposed this patient to uh, bouts of uh, mind-numbing violence. Mm. And so, I mean, it was the patient required pretty much two-to-one monitoring 24-7. 
and they did ECT on this patient and the patient actually got a little bit worse because it it seemed to disinhibit them so that they were sort of a little bit more energized. And so the, the actual number of assaults increased after that point. Wow. That sounds like that antidepressant warning where like, oh, if you've been planning suicide for a bunch of years and you take a medication that makes you better at your goals, <laughs> you know, that's dangerous. Never heard it put that way, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a disinhibiting sort of activating effect that I think a lot of our meds can do. Yeah, that might be I, a maybe, part of the maybe I was, yeah. sorry. No, I'm just saying it, it maybe is that related to the theory about the energizing effect. It's just the disinhibiting part of it. It just feels like you can just uh, act more easily. There's no, this whatever disinhibition is going on, either psychologically or neurotransmitter parts of your brain, it kind of frees that up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, in regards to the specific patient, I mean, he was he was one of the sickest people I've ever I've ever seen in a state hospital and his uh, sort of pathology fit no discernible categories really well. So we, we really had to throw the kitchen sink at him. That's a good point to make too, that state hospitals is a place where there is more access yeah. to ECT. Yeah. And that's where we have some of our sickest patients. Yeah. A lot of the patients undergo ECT there. Well, okay. Does that sound like good for um, the extended broadcast? Yeah. The director's I don't have cut. Anything else. The director's cut. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, listeners. Thanks. Thanks, y'all. Thanks.